Research Briefs podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Streveler, coming to you from the School of Engineering Education at Purdue University. The goal of Research Briefs is to expand the boundaries of engineering education research. In these podcasts, we'll speak to researchers about new theories, new methods, and new findings in engineering education research. Today we're going to be doing something a little different. I'm, I'm calling it a flipped interview. And we are having a guest interviewer, who's Emily Dringenberg, and I will actually be the interviewee. Um, I'm getting to learn a bit about how nerve-wracking it is to be interviewed. <laughs> it's much easier to be the interviewee. And uh, we'll begin today with Emily telling you a little bit about herself. Uh, I will say, though, she's one of my very, very favorite people. So I'm excited to be interviewed by her. Thanks, Ruth. Thank you so much for being willing to go along with this. Um, We met in 2011 when I came to Purdue for my PhD, and I've had you as an instructor. Um, You've served on my committee, and we've stayed in touch over the years. And so I had this idea that I always enjoy listening to your podcast and the, the guests that you bring on from our community, but I thought you know, you have so much wisdom and experience and that it would be worthwhile to flip the script and let us learn a little bit more about you. So thank you for being willing to do that. Um, That is our goal for today is to just get a little more insight into you as a researcher um, and get the treat of hearing from you um, in addition to, to the other guests that you've hosted over the course of this podcast. Great. Um, So you talk about this podcast that you are committed to um, providing to our community as a way to promote um, new or different approaches to research, and you want to try to inspire others. So can you tell us a little bit about how you came to that decision, how you um, decided to embark on this project? Well, there's kind of three parts to that answer. Um, One is that I am always interested in helping people think a bit differently, and particularly people in the engineering education research community. That's an interest I've had now for, I realize, about 15 years. Um, In 2004, along with Carl Smith and Ron Miller and Barbara Olds, Um, I created a series of workshops that we called the Rigorous Research in Engineering Education Workshops, the RREE for short. And um, I I should add probably that at the time we created the workshop, we didn't realize how charged the word rigorous might be. Mm -hmm. We did it kind of for alliteration. And um, now we really kind of call it high quality research to kind of take off that strangeness about rigorous. But that Mm -hmm. was in 2004. And I have retained that interest in helping the community grow. And certainly in 2005, uh, when I started thinking about going to Purdue, and then 2006, when I did, that increased. Um, and the other part 
of this is that I myself, and I think you'll ask me more about this later, was really dissatisfied with the kind of research methods I was using and thinking more critically about the frameworks I was using. And so I wanted to think about, well, let's do something new. How does one create a new framework? How does one create new methods? And I didn't know how to do that. I'm not sure I still know how to do that. But I thought I would ask people that had done it what they did. And with regards to the podcast, I've just become a podcast fan. I love the stories that I hear from the different podcasts. And um, so a couple of summers ago, I got the idea of why don't I have a podcast that talks to people that make new methods and new frameworks. And the people at Purdue and Engineering Education said that they would uh, produce it. So I didn't have to worry about the technical part. I just had to think about who I would ask to be on the podcast. And so that's how it started. And we're in our third season now. Yes, going strong. I'm wondering if you have any, as a podcast fan, do you have any particular programs that you really enjoy or that served as inspiration for the podcast you're hosting now? Well, um, my my favorite podcasts change from time to time, but um, the one that I listen to most often, I guess, is the New York Times Book Review podcast. I just, oh, every Friday it comes out and I'm just <laughs> crazy to listen to it and then go run to the library and get the books they talk about. And um, also the podcast from the, the Daily, it's called, from, again, from the New York Times the host there, Michael Barbaro, is one of my heroes. Um, I love the uh, series Invisibilia, mm. uh, Hidden Brain. Um, the, uh, there's a podcast called uh, Brain Science um, with a, a neuroscientist called Ginger Campbell, who, again, brings on people who've written books about the brain. So those are some of my, my favorites. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then what, I know you've mentioned that you've really enjoyed doing this podcast and hosting it. Can you tell us a little bit more about what it's been like now that you've have some momentum with the project? So I get to talk to people that I admire and whose work I've admired for often a long time. And the podcast allows me to ask questions that I wouldn't necessarily ask, perhaps. Um, I think one of the most stark examples for me is when I um, had Carl Smith as a guest. And I have known Carl for since like 2000. Mm -hmm. We've done so many things together. And I really consider him a good friend. And yet when I sat down and asked him some things about how his career began and how he keeps going, there were a lot of things he told me that I didn't know. Um, and it's, it's just a great excuse to ask people the really nosy questions. <laughs> that if you're just sitting down having coffee, you might not ask them. Yeah. So yeah. It's, that's what I really enjoy about it. it. It is one of the most fun things that I do right now. And I'm mm -hmm. doing it until 
people won't let me. Yes, we'll keep listening. Good, good. Thank you. Yeah. All right. So as someone who's been involved, like you said, since the early 2000s and really has played a leadership role in this field developing, um, tell me about how you think, so this goal of having the podcast, create new ways of research, utilize new frameworks. Tell me about how you've seen that play out. What are some of the ways that people who have done that or have been able to accomplish that? Um, what does that look like? So um, one thing I guess I, I would need to say is just broadly about watching the discipline. When we first did the RREE in 2004, there were no departments. Um, JEE was just starting, the Journal of Engineering Education was just starting to switch to be uh, thinking more about serious kinds of research, high quality research and what that would mean. Um, and so people who were in the field then had to really be renegades and do it because they really super loved it and would do it almost at any cost. Mm. And now that the field is much more accepted and there's departments like your own at Ohio State mm -hmm. and others growing and people can get positions as faculty in engineering education departments and there's numbers of graduates. Purdue has over a hundred PhDs that we've graduated. Um, things are becoming much more normalized and people don't have to think of this as, as risky as they used to have to think about it. And so um, I guess because I would consider myself a renegade, maybe I'm a little sad that you don't have to be as much of a renegade from mm. that standpoint, although really it's much nicer now that it's safer to do this. Um, and, and one of the things that I really thought when I moved to Purdue from the wonderful Colorado School of Mines in, in beautiful golden Colorado, mm -hmm. um, sobbing all the way to Indiana from Colorado. <laughs> Uh, literally, when we were going on I-70 and we passed the sign that says, you are now leaving colorful Colorado. I mean, oh. I was just a mess. Um, so I loved living there. But one of the things that I thought was, if you could find a place where people could truly kind of fall back into their interest in engineering education, and not have to do it as a side thing, not have to do it as a hobby, that there would be something amazingly powerful about that. And there is. And working with folks like you and other Purdue students and graduates who've been able to take your wonderful engineering mind and just use that to focus on this new discipline, it has been wildly inspiring. Mm. Um, so, so I'm very glad that it's a thing now and that it's safer and that a lot more people can just really do it. But 
one of the things that I've noticed, Emily, in preparing for this interview is thinking about some of the questions that you've asked as, as preparation for this is how much my uh, ideas about like what's meaningful or what's good or what's important are shaped by my own values. And so this is a place there of like, you know, I like being a renegade and I like not having, you know, making my own path. So therefore it's cool when that happens and it's a little bit sadder when it's not there anymore. Um, but to go back to the second part of your, your question about, uh, what what is what is it about now the people that are pushing the field forward i think what they they have in common is um they're really willing to ask themselves uh, what is it that i want to know what's the best way to answer that question and um maybe they don't have to be renegades about the field or worry so much about going into this discipline that didn't exist, but they don't, they don't revere frameworks and methods. They don't think like, oh, because this is Shamaz's idea of grounded theory, that therefore this is some thing that's written in stone and is the only way to do this, or you know, because Vygotsky said this, that that's, again, that's the absolute truth, that they're, they're more willing to question those assumptions, to think about the assumptions and really see if they match what they want to do. And they also are willing to branch out and read widely and perhaps, you know, go to conferences of slightly different disciplines and pick up ideas and see how they can incorporate them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really like that imagery of like a renegade and how that was a necessity in sort of your starting out in this engineering education as a formal discipline, but maybe that's faded away a bit. Mm -hmm. So I can understand now how your guests, you're really trying to highlight the people who are choosing to still engage in that, even though they might not have to, still willing to push the boundaries and still willing to really synthesize things in an interdisciplinary way or try right. new things or question assumptions. Yeah, that makes sense. I think there's one other point to it too, Emily, that maybe I hadn't really thought of before. When we were um, first really beginning engineering education, um, there was talks of what does a new discipline need. And one of the things that popped up is that a new discipline needs its own theories and its own methods. And we have in this community for a long time borrowed from education and psychology and sociology and anthropology, which I think is fabulous. But I also think it's time that we can give back to those disciplines and begin to create new theories, new frameworks, new methods. So I, I think it's, it's time now after, you know, 10 years or more of being a discipline that we can begin to do that. So 
again, hopefully the podcast will get people thinking about that and highlight folks that I think are doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know that has come up with some of my students as we have them read some of those earlier papers, you know, um, from Higigi, from your work and that sort of thing. And that question sort of starts to bubble out, I think, of our current PhD students. Like, okay, well, now it's been a minute. So, you know, what are we contributing? What are we doing? What's our identity? So I, that makes a lot of sense that the, you know, ground is fertile for that sort of thing. Because I hear students saying that when we mm-hmm. talk about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think another interesting thing, and I always enjoy learning more about you, is your career as a researcher. You've had a long and productive career with lots of different experiences, but I'd be interesting to hear you talk more about your journey, this idea of being a renegade, um, and for yourself as a researcher. For a lot of us now, you're a mentor, you're a colleague, um, but tell me a little bit about how your research career unfolded as someone who was a renegade or as someone who was um, even by necessity needing to push the boundaries? Mm -hmm. So I guess I should say in that I feel I was really lucky to be raised in a way that I could trust myself. Um, My parents let me make decisions and if I felt I really needed to do something, I did it. And I didn't, I, I guess I haven't second guessed myself. So as, again, in preparing for, for this um, interview, I was looking back at my career and I could say that there are different questions that popped up and when they popped up, they they just beat on me so hard that I knew I had to try to answer them. And those questions have always revolved around learning, but there have been different flavors of it. So the very, very first question that just grabbed me like that was way back, I was living in Honolulu, I was working as an advisor for the College of Arts and Sciences at that point, I was like 25 years old. And I was working as an instructor in a department of general science, which just did service classes to non-science majors. And I was also a uh, advisor. And People would come in as to get, you know, ideas about, well, what, what courses do I still need to take? And you tell them you need this many upper division and this many science and, you know, the whole spiel that everybody knows advisors tell them. Mm-hmm. And students would come in and say, you know, I studied for this test for three days, but I failed it. And when I heard people do that, I would just like, what? how could you study for three days? I didn't say this, of course, but I would thought, hey, how could you study for three days and fail it? And in my experience as a student, if I studied something, I got it. You know, if I applied myself, I got an A. If I didn't apply myself as much, I got a B. I never thought about, which I didn't get too many Bs, but every once in a while I would. And I did get one C in Chem 2. It was like, 
my only C. Um, so this was this just really puzzled me, and it, if I, as now as I look back at it, it's like, oh my God, you were so naive, but that's what I thought. And I thought, gee, are there good ways to study and not as good ways to study if somebody could do it for three days and not, you know, still fail? Mm-hmm. Now I look at it, three days. That's all you studied. <laughs> But then I thought that was a lot, you know. Um, And so that was my first question. Are there better ways to study? And this was like in 1980, 1979, probably. I think I started being an advisor in 78. So it was around this time. Um, And that is actually the question that led me back to get my PhD in education psychology, which is... um, yeah, that's an hour-long story, so I won't go more into that. Um, then I started working, we'll go fast forward to the 90s, and I was living in Colorado and working at Colorado School of Mines, which is, as some of you know, an engineering school. And of uh, the students there, it's a selective school. The students there are very bright. And again, I would see people that were learning or trying to learn, but not doing it. And my question became then, why are some concepts so difficult? Mm-hmm. And um, I discovered almost miraculously, I think, um, the work of Mickey Chi on ontologies. And um, in 1999, I went to the AERA, American Educational Research Association Conference, with a question of trying to answer why are some concepts so difficult to learn. And I sat down in the audience, and Mickey Chi was giving a presentation. And the first thing out of her mouth was, today I'm going to talk about why some concepts are so difficult to learn. And I just like, I freaked out. I just freaked out. <laughs> um, I had admired her work uh, from the time I was getting my PhD, and my advisor even teased me and called her the goddess because I just thought she was so brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, but I hadn't really kept up with her work, and I didn't really know about this new work in ontology, which actually in 99, it wasn't that new. She started publishing it. And 92, but I just, I hadn't kept up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that began my work in misconceptions and concept inventories. And then in, um, what was it, 2013, I think I took a sabbatical and started reading what I thought was going to be about social aspects of conceptual change. But I actually started reading again more about the brain and just got so fascinated and just obsessed with parts of the brain that don't speak, the parts that give us gut feelings and intuitions and ahas that often tell us things that we can't put into words. Um, and really wondering about that kind of learning and how that impacts learning overall. Um, and, and that's the question that I'm currently just 
captured by. And maybe I'll continue to be captured by the, the rest of my career. We'll see. I mean, every 10 or 20 years, something pops up and just like shakes mm. me. And so we'll see. I feel that's reassuring as someone towards the early part of my career as an academic is this idea of the order of decades or, you know, that which you've pursued these questions and tried to find new ways to investigate them. So that's neat to hear you um, share that. I don't think, at least I don't always realize that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, now we're supposed to figure it out and answer our research question and move on right. to the next question. Right. Uh, like but, when you, you know, come in to get your PhD, you should know what your question is going to be. Mm-hmm. And, and now as an assistant professor, right, you're, everybody says, oh, you've got to write your career proposal. And in your career proposal, proposal what do you want to be? What do you want to be known for, right? Figure it out now. Come on, do it. Yeah, and, and that's, yeah. Mm-hmm. Occasionally people will be blessed with an early aha. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't always happen and you can't, you know, with anything that's more implicit kind of learning, you, you can't force it. Yeah. Yeah. So over the years, these different big questions that you've had, you said you haven't second guessed yourself. I know I've heard you use the expression, follow your bliss. Mm-hmm. Can you talk more about the role that that played or what that means to you as a person as you've gone through these different iterations of big sticky questions? Yes, yeah, so I think it goes back to that idea of trusting yourself, and maybe that's why the follow your bliss and, and some of Joseph Campbell's ideas really resonate with me again because it, it aligns with my values. Um, but I, I th- again, here, just take this with a grain of salt. It's not necessarily true. It's just my own value. But I think that it's important that in some part of your life, you are able to find something that really sings to you. Mm. Um, Again, Joseph Campbell, to go back to Joseph Campbell, he talked about some um, traditions that talk about people hearing their own individual song. Um, And I I think it's important to, when you're blessed with hearing your song, to follow that song and not to say, oh, that's not practical, or oh, what are you going to do with that? Or I couldn't do that. Um, But just to see where it follows. If you're really lucky, as researchers are, we get to have that be our bread and butter. Not everybody can do that. Mm-hmm. But there are still parts of your life that, as a hobby or avocation, you can follow that curiosity. Mm-hmm. And it makes, it seems to align with this overall goal, right? You're highlighting people in our community with your podcast who are able to find new ways to pursue the questions that um, maybe sing to them, so to speak. Um, Do you see any challenges, all the students that you work with, all the folks that you know in the community, um, for people who are trying to maybe follow their bliss as a researcher? Do you see challenges to it the way that might play out? Well, if... 
you follow your bliss and do different things and cut a new path. You will have people tell you you are crazy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well intentioned people, well meaning mm-hmm. people, don't do that. Don't do that. What are you going to do with that? Oh my goodness, don't do that. And they could be people near and dear to us. It could be your parents telling you that. Thank goodness my parents didn't say that, but could be your parents or siblings or close friends or your spouse saying, oh my God, how are we going to pay the mortgage if you do that? Um, and again, I'm not, I'm not recommending that people be frivolous and just drop everything to go off, be a painter in Tahiti, you know, that, um, but you have to, you have to be a little bit, thick-skinned and not listen to those folks. Um, One person that um, is another person I really admire is Eric Kandel, who won the Nobel Prize in 2000 for his research on memory. And he's written some very interesting books. He's about 80 years old now. And he says that there are kind of three major times in his career when he's made big switches. Um, He started out as a psychiatrist and then went into research and worked with invertebrates when everybody wasn't. And now he's working with uh, mammals again. And after having won the Nobel prize about vertebrates or invertebrates, um, And each time he did that, people told him he was nuts. And he said, you have to just not listen. And he talks about an interesting concept that he calls day science and night science as you're transitioning. And um, he said, you know, your day science is your bread and butter, the stuff you're known for. Keep doing that. And as you're doing Mm -hmm. that, then at night or on the weekends or your other time, you go pursue this other thing and you do that until that can become your day science. Right. So at this point that you're transitioning, you often have kind of two jobs. You have the job you're getting paid for and this other new thing you're developing to put yourself in the position to get paid for it. Um, and I think that's that's a really wise way to approach it. Um, just not to throw everything over, but to, to again have the courage to keep following that. And and one question that I know I keep asking the podcast um, guests is how do they keep going in the face of like with Carl Smith. Um, for again decades people said active learning what's that why are that's crazy and he kept doing it for year after year after year after year and you know how do you keep going because i think courage is really important yeah 
Yeah, and I'm thinking about some of your previous episodes, and I know that that has explicitly come up multiple times. I remember when Nadia Kellum was talking about, you know, her advisor, whoever, don't use the word emotion, you know, just don't do that, but she did. And James Huff talking about he didn't want to reach out to the, you know, big person who had created IPA, but he did and had a working relationship. So I think since I've heard that coming up with some of your guests, this idea that, um, not even implicitly, but explicitly being discouraged or told no and, and yes. still able to pursue. Yes. Um, so, you, so you touched on it. I did want to ask you that same question that you ask your guests. You know, what, what is your advice for people who are interested in being research renegades and pushing the boundaries? Mm-hmm. Uh, how, what would you say to encourage them to have that courage? So I don't know where people's intestinal fortitude comes from. Um, and, you know, I, I remember asking Nadia Kellum that, you know, like, where does that come from? That your advisor said, don't do it. And you just did it. And, you know, she didn't really know, but said maybe it came from her mom. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know earlier you were asking me and it's like, well, I think it came from my parents. So somehow, and there actually, there are some people um, that have parents that discourage them and they get their fortitude from defying that. Um, So I don't know where that burning desire comes from, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. Um, But one thing that I think is important is that in order to hear the song, you have to be quiet enough to listen to it. Because if you're frantically buzzing around all the time and your mind is jammering, Mm -hmm. you're not going to hear the song. Um, We have a sweet little Carolina wren who's built a nest right in front of our front yard. And actually, he's out there tweeting away right now, hoping that Mm -hmm. some lady is going to find his nest. (laughs) And um, we're rooting for him. And... um, (laughs) You know, if it's too busy in here, if I've got the music on too loud, I don't hear him singing. So I think in this frantic time, people need to take the time to be quiet and to reflect and to write in your journals and to think about things. Um, And then the other thing is you have to expose yourself to different areas because to be creative, you're, you're linking things that aren't necessarily have been linked before. So you have to look outside of a particular narrow lane and uh, allow yourself to have different kinds of experiences. Um, some people like Julia Cameron, who wrote The Artist's Way, actually talk about doing this very systematically. And and she talked about something, I think she called it an artist's date. And maybe it was once a week or maybe once a month, you go somewhere where there's a lot of different things that you could look at or see or experience. And there are things that you wouldn't necessarily see just to let you have some different inputs. So I think having different inputs, you know, in in our case as researchers, reading different kinds of things, listening to different podcasts, watching different 
science specials or things um, is important and just letting yourself reflect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So speaking of reflection, um, if you are, you have obviously more things, we are still learning from you, you are still going strong, more podcasts to record, but if you reflect on your career and you think about being more towards the end than the beginning, um, what sort of legacy are you hoping to leave? Well, right now I'm at a part of my life where what you folks, meaning, you know, the new assistant professors and the people in new departments are doing is more important to me than what I do. Um, You have the future in front of you. You have the enthusiasm. You have the energy, which I I kind of feed off of quite, quite frankly. I I feel like a vampire sometimes. And so my legacy, I hope, would be you all that, again, thinking about your wonderful minds and the things that you're going to create and the good you want to do for the world by the things you create, um, that's, that's my legacy. And um, I'm, I'm very blessed to have gotten to know you all and... I know you know that I love you, um, and that's that's a really wonderful gift. So thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I think I speak on behalf of many of the folks in our community um, that we owe you a big thank you, thank you as well for your leadership and your generosity and the wisdom. So um, thank you for sharing just a little bit of that with us today, and I hope that listeners appreciate, like I do, getting to learn a little bit more about you Um, And we will continue to do so as we we get to work and learn with you. Thank you, Ruth. Well, thank you. And Emily, at some point, we're going to flip this and I'm going to interview you. And I will be a podcast guest. (laughs) Sounds good. I will be prepping my ideas. Okay. (laughs) Thanks, Ruth. Thank you. Research Briefs is produced by the School of Engineering Education at Purdue. Thank you to Patrick Vogt for composing our theme music. A transcript of this podcast can be found by Googling Purdue Engineering Education Podcast. And please check out my blog, ruthstreveler.wordpress.com.